1: We are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and tonight we're going to take a look at the first segment of the seventh trumpet. If you recall, we've seen last time that the seventh trumpet contains a number of segments, the the first one being the heavenly liturgy that closes off with the revelation or the apparition of that woman closed with the sun. Right after that, the dragon appears, and there is war that takes place, and this war carries us through ch- chapter 13. Then chapter 14, we see the Lord on Mount Zion with 144,000 who are with him, and after that, we have the that angel who will reap the harvest, and the harvest of uh, wheat, and then the harvest of grapes. And those grapes are then put into the winepress of God. And then we have leading into the bowls of wrath. That's the overview of that seventh trumpet. And we've looked at it last time. We've covered it um, in, in a broad stroke, so to speak. Tonight, we're going to look very specifically... At the segment from chapter 11, verse 15, the beginning of the seventh trumpet, through chapter um, 12, verse 2. Let me read those to you, and then we're going to uh, go through them. Up until now, I have mentioned Our Lady very little, uh, specifically because the literal sense so far has not lent itself to the manifestation of her presence. However, tonight this is going to change radically. I have mentioned to you before that the way ancient writers write is not like us, where we would, for instance, consider the introduction and the conclusion as being the most important parts of a book, perhaps. In ancient writing, it is the midpoint. The middle part of the book is the most important part. So we lead to it and we go away from it. And clearly, in the book of Revelation, the midpoint precisely is the woman closed with the sun. That is, in a sense, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It isn't just a revelation about his person, it is a revelation about his rule. And the way he's going to rule is through this woman, woman closed in the sun, as we're going to see tonight. Let us read these verses first, beginning with verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to Thee, Lord God Almighty, who art and who wast, that thou hast taken thy great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but thy wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding thy servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear thy name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, and earthquake. And heavy hail. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. Unlike what you might find in other interpretations of the book of Revelation, I group the woman with the preceding part. I think she is the culmination, she is the climax of that part. And the reason why is because the, my, my driving, uh, my map, if you will, for the book of Revelation is the liturgy. And I think that the liturgy gives us the key to understand the book without tweaking it, without doing violence to it, without having to tear its parts apart, as you will see today. So... Recall that we have these movements in the book of Revelation that where we started with Saint John on the island of Patmos on earth, then the Lord came and walked among the churches on earth, then they went up to heaven. We had the heavenly throne and we had what we called the liturgy of creation where the angels. And the priests, all of the church, is praising God as creator. And we said that the two together equated to our liturgy of the word. That part of the mass where we praise God as creator, as ruler. We give him glory. We tell him, you, Lord God, you are all in all. But all through it, we are um, uh, praising God and His majesty, and really the focus of God as a Savior comes to us during the liturgy of the Eucharist. Not to say that we don't mention it before, we do. But the liturgy of the Eucharist is really about God effecting salvation for us. And that's where we are right now. We're smack in the middle of it. So, we, we as I said earlier, we went up to uh, to heaven with St. John, We had that vision of the throne from which we saw the seven seals being opened. After the seventh seal being opened, we went back down to earth. So the perspective is changing. And certain events occurred that culminated with what? With that mighty angel in the sixth trumpet saying what? He swore by the one who lives that there shall be no more delay, that in the time of the seventh trumpet, the mystery of God shall be revealed. And we saw that that mystery was how the church is going to be the teacher of angels, how the church is going to unify Gentiles and, and Jews together. And now the seventh trumpet has been blown. And what happens? We go back to an antiphonal hymn where God is being praised. So imagine first the whole congregation hearing that trumpet being blown. Watch the conversation going. The trumpet is blown. An angel blows the trumpet. And then loud voices are heard saying. Loud voices is not specified. So it is the entire people of God in heaven. Angels and saints all together giving glory to God. And saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. They have now declared something to be a reality. They have declared that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. This is a very important principle that explains to you the power of the liturgy. When they said that in heaven, in that heavenly encounter, is that statement true? Are they pronouncing truth? Has this truth been seen or realized on earth? No. You understand? That is key. If we don't understand this delay between the truth, which is pronounced in the liturgy, and its realization, its unfolding on earth, then our only choice is to say, right now we are at the end of the world. There's not a choice. For when will the kingdom of the world truly, concretely, completely visibly become the kingdom of Christ and of the Lord at the end of time. Without the liturgy, our only choice is to go all the way to the end of time. And now let me ask you this question. No matter how wonderful the news is about the end of time, no matter how great it is, how does this concern us? Right now, today. How does that concern the Christians in Iraq? How does that console them? How does that teach them a truth that strengthens them? You understand? A truth about what is going to happen at the end of time, which might happen 4,000 years from now, no matter how wonderful it is, in the pastoral sense, is not going to encourage us much, is it? Now, If you think it is, please tell me. I'd like to hear from you. You're a really remarkable individual if you can live with the hope that something is going to happen at the end of time. We are concerned with the now, right now. Not even what happened during John's time, are we? I mean, we want to understand it. Why? So we can see how it impacts our lives. But at the end of the day, it's about today, isn't it? Therefore, liturgically, what they said is true it needs to be to unfold in history. Is that something new? Am I announcing a principle that is foreign to Scripture? Let's think about some examples. God told Abraham what? This land, yeah, you're going to be a father of many nations, and this land is yours. Was that true? Was that absolutely true? Did he get it right there and then? Did he even live, live to see it? You get it? Moses told Joshua, take the people of Israel, cross the Jordan, and take the land. Was that true? Was Moses inspired by God? How long did it take them to take that land? Five 100 years until david conquered jerusalem actually a little bit less 400 sorry do you understand there is a principle of delay between what god announces as certain and true and then its actual historical realization all right. Do you see that? So what is at the end of the day the purpose of the liturgy? The purpose of the liturgy is to take that eternal word of God and make it historical reality. I've told you that before. Liturgy makes history. Liturgy makes history. Now, you're living at the time of John. You're living right now in Iraq. This, These words apply today just as they applied back then. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And when you hear these words, what should be the next question that come to mind? How? Lord, I'm from Missouri. Show me. Right, Okay, I believe you. How? How are you going to make that happen? How can you take a situation that is bleak and dark and tell me it is your kingdom, Lord? Do you begin to feel the power of the resurrection? That is what we're talking about because today the Christians of Iraq are confronted with... Powerful forces set against them. They don't have the material means, the military means, the economic means to resist, do they now? Alright, the apostles and the early Christians were confronted with what? A powerful force set against them. They didn't have the economic mean, the military mean to resist, did they? Yet what happened? Liturgy happened. You understand? Now there's another really key ingredient here that we're going to get to. But I wanted to make you understand that these words are not just la 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 la. Let's sing a hymn to God. Okay, cool. Move on. Next. As we are wont to do sometimes in Mass is we're not paying attention to the, to the words of the liturgy. We're not making ourselves be one with it and say, I put my will into these words. Lord, I am praying For these words to happen. And I only pray that our petitions become far more powerful than they are right now. Sometimes I feel we go through our petitions like somebody needs to go to the bathroom. Petitions are extremely powerful because this, we've praised God, we are praying Him, we are in the liturgy, now we present our holy needs. As holy people of God who purified ourselves through confession, through the graces of the sacrament, we now come to God with pure heart and say, Lord, for the sake of your church, we need these things. Make them happen. You are before the royal court of God. All right? All right? And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Notice again, the communal bodily movement. All of them together did the same gesture at the same time. Everybody said the same thing and everybody did the same thing. This is called unity. This is called unity. So again, I'll remind those of you who are of the Latin rite, please don't hold hands during the liturgy. You'd be creating dissonance, disunity. It is not part of the liturgy. Do not make liturgy. Liturgy comes from heaven. We do not democratically fabricate it here on earth. We don't do that. The other thing I want to point out to you is if you recall, at the end of the seventh, at the, at the end of the seventh, uh, At the seventh seal, what happened? There was half an hour of what? Silence. Silence. Now, their voices, the whole congregation is saying this, right? They're saying, the kingdom of the world has become... I want to ask you this question. We as a congregation. How do you think they were saying it in heaven? Are they saying it like this? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Is that how they're saying it? St. Augustine used to say that when in his church, the Christians would stand to, to um, profess the creed, the, the, the windows would shake. This is battle. We are soldiers for a king. You see how far we've drifted away from our proper participation in the liturgy? The other question I'm going to ask you, do you think that the setting for these words ought to be, um, you know, a movie theater? Would you think the architecture would be that of a movie theater? Think about that. Now... The congregation said something, the 24 elders say something else, right? And what do they say? We give thanks to thee. We give thanks to thee. Key on that word, thanks. What is that word in Greek again? Eucharisto. 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 We give thanks. Eucharisto. And it's the priests who are saying it. We give thanks to thee, Lord God Almighty, who art and who wast, that thou hast taken thy great power and begun to reign. Isn't that odd? Isn't that an odd saying? What was God doing now up to this point? Well, you know, well He wasn't reigning, right? Sort of, why? I mean, He's just begun to reign. I mean, they're saying it, right? Why wasn't He reigning before? Is it that like somebody was somehow uh, preventing God from reigning? No, right? God had closed that kingdom. We're giving thanks to him by saying, you begun to reign, meaning, mom, finally you brought food home. Not, mom can't bring food home, but you just did it. You understand? We're not saying, oh God, finally you found the strength to reign. We're saying, Lord, that which you've withheld all that time, you're not withholding anymore. You do not withheld, withhold any longer. That's what we're saying here. All right? The nations raged, raged, but their wrath came, and a time for the dead to be judged, for rewarding thy, th- thy servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear thy name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So, the nations raged. Raged. What was the answer to the rage of the nations? God's wrath. Thy wrath came. So they're giving Eucharisto because God's wrath came. Do you see the text? That is, again, very important. God's wrath towards the nation is His mercy towards His people. If you have someone attacking a group of children, then another person who come and attack these people, showing them His wrath, is mercy to the children, isn't it now? Right? You see why we need God's wrath? Because there is no mercy without wrath. All right? And we've grown way too weak in our language about God, only stressing the mercy side and leaving out the wrath, Because it seems to me that we don't really want to have an honest and truthful relationship with God. And the tame and, and what happens now? The time for the dead to be judged. remember when we said the dead to be judged does not necessarily mean... That those who are in a tomb are going to be to be to come back up and be judged. recall from the previous the previous um, uh, trumpet that those folks who are being attacked were spiritually dead that 's what they 're talking about they 're talking about those who are spiritually dead. Why is that? Because if it was only the judgment that has to do with the dead, meaning the end of time, then the rest of the sentence makes no sense. Watch. The dead to be judged, rewarding thy servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear thy name, both small and great. Well, obviously, those who fear thy name, both small and great, are alive. Otherwise, they would not be fearing his name, would they now? So it would seem as if we're at a point where All the bad guys died, and only the good guys are left. If you were to understand this as the end of time. And again, it's artificial. It makes no sense, and it breaks away from the previous trumpet. Where in the previous trumpet, we saw them being spiritually dead, because they don't want to repent. They persist in doing the same iniquity as they were doing it before before the woes of the sixth and the fifth trumpet hit. So, They're talking about the judgment of those who are spiritually dead, and then those who are alive, you see. The spiritually dead are all grouped together. They're anonymous. There's no distinction. But those who are alive are are broken into three groups. First, the prophets. Then the saints. So prophets, Old Testament. Saints, New Testament. And then all those who fear thy name. The fear of the Lord is not... A fear of, um, it's not a fear of a master. It is a fear of a father. It's a filial fear. It is a fear that recognizes the majesty, the glory, the power, the awesome holiness of God. And that does not want to offend him. That is the fear of the Lord. And in the book of Wisdom we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Not wanting to offend God is the beginning of wisdom. So all these are going to be rewarded. I want you to listen to those words in the context of Iraq. Let me read them to you again. We give thanks to Thee, Lord God Almighty, who art and who was, that Thou hast taken Thy power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but Thy wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. For rewarding thy servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear thy name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Who are those destroyers? We've seen them before. These are the demons. Okay? So it's breaking their power. So again, Revelation never loses sight of the true battle. It isn't just us and other humans. It is also the principalities and powers of the world with which we're contending. And by his reign, he's taking care of all of this. Now, as with the previous situation, the priests praised and glorified God, and God responds with action, not word. Remember, in the first, in, at the beginning of the book, we saw them praising God, and what happens? What was in God's hand? the scroll. And then the Lamb came and took the scroll. Now they praised and gave glory to God and what happens? God doesn't speak back, does He? He acts. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple and there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. For us to properly understand why this is momentous, why it is important, we have to Recall what the ark was all about. So let's just do that. The ark, as you recall, was a box 2.5 cubits long, 1.5 cubits wide and high, about 45 inches long, 27 inches wide and high, made out of acacia wood and covered with gold within and without. And it had two staffs on each side, which were also made of acacia wood, also covered with gold, used to transport it. The Ark of the Covenant contained three very important items. Number one, it contained the law, the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone that Moses placed in the Ark. The second thing it contained was the Aaron's rod that had budded. You can read that in Numbers chapter 17 where all of these men stood with with rods and uh, Aaron's rods budded an almond on it. Remember, almond was the first fruit, right? To indicate that he is the high priest of God. All right? So, first, the tablet of the commandments, the word of God. Second, the Aaron's rod indicating his high priesthood. And third, a golden pot containing manna. That's what the ark contained. Now, in Jerusalem, the ark was placed in the Holy of Holies. The innermost part of the sanctuary, which was... Closed by a a veil which was 30 feet wide. And if memory serves me right, about 70 feet high. And behind that veil, that curtain, stood the Ark of the Covenant. On the top, on the cover, there were two cherubims made of beaten gold, their wings touching, and between them was what is called the mercy seat. And once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter that Holy of Holies with the blood of a lamb. And he would sprinkle the, the mercy seat with the blood of the lamb and pronounce the name of God. And it is said that on that day, God's presence, the Shekinah, would be made manifest. And God would accept the sacrifice of the Lamb and atone, cover, for the sins of the high priest and all of Israel. Now, I want to point out to you, this is not like confession. It is not communal confession because the sins are the sins of the people of Israel. Not each individual separately. You understand? It didn't have power of sanctification. It lacked that which is found in the sacrament of confession. And in a nutshell, that is Paul's whole point. The old covenant with all its glory and God's presence and the temple and the ark and everything together could not sanctify you, could not give you what the new covenant can give you today. That is the ark. What was its purpose then? First, it's a means; it's a temporary means of forgiveness, right? Temporary, but it was a means of forgiveness. Second, it foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah, of course. Why? Because it implied the sacrifice of the lamb. The high priest had to sacrifice a lamb and had to bring the blood of the lamb and sprinkle the mercy seat for that. Sacrifice to be accepted and atonement to take place. But the Ark plays an even more important role. Recall the four senses. Now we're going to take the anagogical sense, the sense that applies to the church and to the end time, but more specifically to Our Lady. The Ark contained, as I said, the word, the Ten Commandments, the rod of Aaron that had budded, and the part of golden part of manna each of these symbols represent who point to who Christ the 10 commandments are the word of god the rod of aaron that had budded is pointing to the priesthood the high priest who is jesus christ and the golden part of manna points to the eucharist so all three of them are pointing to Christ before His incarnation, before His passion, after His resurrection. As the Word of God, as the High Priest ministering here on earth, and then after that, present in the Eucharist. If that is the case, what is that box representing then? The only person that contained Him. Mary. Mary. The only person that contained him, Mary. That is why, as part of her litany, we call her the Ark of the New Covenant. That's why we call her this way. Hmm? To see that in a a clearer contrast, I'm going to refer you to two passages in Scripture. I'll let you read them. Read 2 Samuel chapter 6, and then Luke chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter 6 and Luke chapter 1. And I'm just going to go through some passages and show you the parallel. Let me give you the historical background. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David has decided to bring the ark that I just described to you to Jerusalem. So, he goes to where the ark was present and he's bringing them back to Jerusalem. he's bringing the, bringing the ark with him to Jerusalem. The ark is placed on a, um, on a bull. And next to the ark walks a Levite priest. God had instructed Moses and told him, only Levite priests will carry the ark, but only using the wooden handles. Any man, any man whatsoever, man meaning generic, wo- woman or man, who touches the ark, you touch the ark, you're dead. That is the law that God gave to Moses. Now we're talking, you know, some 600, yeah, 400 years later, right? And, uh, and this particular priest is walking next to the ark. Now, you know, the shoulders of a bull makes whatever you put on it kind of wobbly. And at one point, the ark was about to fall. So this man steadies the ark by placing his hand on it. Two seconds later, he's dead. When this happens, David stops and then says, Whoa, who am I that the ark of the Lord should come to me? He takes that ark and he leaves it with Obed-Edom and it stays there for three months. So the story goes as such. David is going to go to get the ark, and, and, and later, actually, when the ark gets to Jerusalem, David danced, dances of joy before the ark. He dances of joy. And um, Amika, his wife, sees him do that, and she despises him for it. And because she despises him for it, God closed her womb, and she was unable to have any children because she despised her husband dancing before the ark. Now, I'm going to show you some very interesting parallels between this text and what happens in Luke. So 2 Samuel 6.2, 2 Samuel 6.2, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from about Judah. Luke one thirty nine, Luke one thirty nine. Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to the city of Judah. 2 Samuel 6.18, six eighteen. David blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Luke one forty two. Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Two Samuel six nine. David said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? Luke one forty four I'm sorry. Luke one forty three Elizabeth says And why is this granted me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 2 Samuel 6.16. Mikal looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Luke 1.44. For behold, the babe in my womb leapt in joy. 2 Samuel 6.11. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-edom the, Gitt- the Gittite three months. And after that The house of Obedodom was blessed, meaning they had a baby. Luke 1.56, and Mary remained with Elizabeth for three months. And after that, Elizabeth gave birth to John. You see those parallels? So Luke, in his customary way, makes a lot of allusions to the Old Testament to point to the importance of Mary as the Ark of the New Covenant. And by the way, that explains why St. Joseph was afraid. To take her. He wasn't concerned that she had actually cheated on him. That's called the um, suspicion theory. I find it weak. Because the angel appeared to Joseph. And didn't say, Joseph, forgive your wife. It's okay. Take her in. Or Joseph, don't suspect your wife. She didn't do anything wrong. Take her in. The angel told him, do not be afraid. A man who suspects his wife of cheating on him usually would not be afraid. Unless she's nine feet tall and and weighs 700 pounds. But other than that, that's not the sentiment that comes in the heart of a man, being afraid. Joseph recognized this is the new Ark of the Covenant. And what else does he know about that? You touch the Ark... Okay, Lord, I knew she's wonderful. I knew she was great. I didn't know she was that great. I'm I'm out of here. He was a humble man. Who am I to be in her presence? That's way too much for me. And when he divorced her silently, guess who took the blame? He did. Because according to Jewish law, you either bring an accusation against her, Or you take her, to divorce her silently. Is is a form of disdain. There's nothing wrong, you know, about her. But I just don't like her nose. Just let her let her go. But but I have nothing. There's nothing I can say about it. You take the blame. He, He said, "I'll take the blame, but I can't be in her presence." The angel came and strengthened him. Joseph, do not be afraid. Now. Let's continue and see why this is all important. As you saw a continuation of the text, it said, And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. One thing that you need to know about the ark is that in 587, when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the city, the Ark disappeared. The Ark to the Jews would be like the... Um, what is uh, Sir Lancelot looking for? The Holy Grail. All right, It's a very important object. So let me read it to you for a second. So you can understand the force of what he doesn't say. And the, the, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Holy Grail was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, etc., etc. And then he goes on, And a great portent appeared in heaven. A woman closed with a... Whoa, John, stop, stop, stop. What did you say you saw in heaven? You saw the Holy Grail? How come it's there? How did it get there? How did you see it? What did it look like? You'd have all these questions coming at you. A Christian of Jewish background will have the same questions. You saw the ark, the ark that was lost, that Jeremiah apparently hid and no one was able to find. You saw it in heaven. It's now in the temple. What does it look like? John doesn't say anything. He just mentions it. And then he starts talking about the woman. He didn't move on. He's describing it to you. That's what it looks like. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. So far, so good. Now it seems we have a little wrinkle. She was with child, and she cried out in her pangs of birth in anguish for delivery. All right. She was with child. And she cried out in her pangs of birth and anguish for delivery. That is a passage that Protestants will quote against the Immaculate Conception. They'll say, Pains of birth is a curse that was given to Eve. Remember that from Genesis? You Catholics say, This woman is Mary... And here she is crying out in her pangs of birth. Therefore, she is under the curse of Eve. How can then she be immaculately conceived? You understand? Fair enough. That's a very good question. Bags a good answer. There's a second problem. She was with child. Who's that child? St. John tells us. Right, He was taken up to heaven and he has to rule, right? So where are we right now, time-wise? Is it Christmas? Well, okay, then who's that child? She gave birth to Jesus at Christmas. Get it? Who's that child? We've got a problem. It sounds like this does not fit. For this reason and others, many... Th- commentators will tell you, and I have to tell you that, that they see in this woman Israel and they uh, back that up by by speaking of the prophet Micah who says of Israel that Israel is like a woman in travail or alternately they'll say this is the church. I think there are truths to both of these statements, but both of them have also their problems. The first thing we need to note, and most of them do not, what does she have on her head? She's got a crown. She's got a crown. Who has a crown on their head? In the case of a woman? Queen. You know what? You go back in the Old Testament and you will never find any prophet speaking of Israel as a queen. Oftentimes, sometimes Israel will be compared to a betrothed, but never explicitly as a queen. The reason why the quotation from Micah does not work here is that in his case, the context tells us that when he says that Israel is like a woman in the pains of birth, in travail, he is precisely referring to the curse of Eve. He's basically saying, Israel, you're suffering this way because you are under a curse. It isn't complimentary. You understand? We need to always interpret Scripture in the context of the teachings of the church. In this case, there is a beautiful encyclical that I recommend you read. It's available on the Vatican website. It's written by Saint Pius the Saint Pius the Ten, ad D.M. illum latissimum. ad D.M. illum latissimum. So just type ad D.M. Diem, D.I.E.M. on uh, on Google. And it should take you straight to the Vatican website. I'm going to use that text to show you what the Holy Father and the Saint had to say about this. But before I go into this, let me, let me tell you what I think is going on here. And why it makes sense only in the context of the liturgy. See, the liturgy takes care of this time issue. Alright. Mary was at the foot of the cross. Right? Right? Why was she there? Obviously, as a mother, you don't want to abandon your child. That's the natural response. But from a public ministry point of view, from a public ministry, from the point of view of Jesus Christ, why was Mary there? Remember, when he was on the cross, his last words were, seeing his mother and the disciple he loved most, he said, Woman, Behold your son, and then son, behold your mother. Right? And seeing that everything has been is, is, is uh, completed, he died. So obviously, those two statements are part of his public ministry. huh? If it was only a question of finding someone who's going to take care of Mary. For the three days he's going to be in a tomb? He would have done that privately. You understand? If it was only a question of Jesus being on the cross, suddenly realizing, Whoa, Mom, I forgot all about Mom. I need to take care of her. John, thank God you're here. I mean, thank me you're here. Could you take care of her while I'm gone for three days? Right? We're not talking about some manager from California. We're talking about the Son of God. No one takes my life away. I lay it down. He knew step by step what he was going to do. Do you understand? All right. Did you, do you think he knew she was going to suffer when she was at the foot of the cross? And he waited till the very last moment before he told her, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Most people don't notice this. Jesus said these words as his last, right before he died. Why? Why didn't he say them at the beginning, right when he was on the cross? Why did he wait all the way through? The answer is staring at you right here. She was with child, and she cried out in the pangs of birth, in anguish for delivery. Here is the insight. Mary's suffering on during the passion gave birth to her son. Let me say that again to you. The new the risen Christ was born on the cross from Mary. The suffering of Mary on the cross The suffering of Mary watching her son is precisely the suffering of a mother watching her son being born. Born into eternity. Now, you might think that I'm saying, well, actually, it's Mary who saved us. It sounds like this. No, I'm not saying that at all. The work of salvation is Christ and Christ alone. And he needed absolutely no one to bring it to completion. In an essential sense, in an absolutely essential sense, Christ needed no one to save us. But what is important is the manner through which He saves us. The manner that He with divine freedom chose. And that manner is Mary. That was His choice. You know, we are accustomed to say that Christ is... The priest and the sacrifice. We have no problem with that. We see Christ playing the dual role, right? He's the priest and he's the sacrifice. And we're, 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 we're comfortable with it. Someone who used this us the first time would be confused. Well, wait a minute. You can't be the... I mean, what is that? Suicide? What do you do? You put yourself on the, on the altar and then you kill yourself? How could you be the, the priest and the sacrifice? We understand that as Christ being truly, absolutely, completely the victim. And Christ being truly, absolutely, completely the high priest. Right? Here it is the same thing. In an active sense, it is Christ that affects salvation. But the way he does it is by allowing the suffering of his mother to be fruitful. Mary is fruitful. And she brings forth The head and the entire body. All of us are born from her on the cross. Do you understand that? Here is Pope Pius X, paragraph 24. And being with child, she cried, travailing in birth, and was in pain to be delivered. John therefore saw the most holy mother of God already in eternal happiness, yet travailing in a mysterious childbirth. What birth was it? Surely it was the birth of us who, still in exile, are yet to be generated to the perfect charity of God and to eternal happiness. And the birth pains show the love and desire with which the Virgin from heaven above watches over us and strives with unwearying prayer to bring about the fulfillment of the number of the elect." On the cross, by her suffering, united to the suffering of Christ. What enables all of this to take place is the suffering of Christ. Without His suffering, nothing can happen. Mary can suffer all she wants, nothing can happen. But He, by His suffering, permits her, enables her to be mother of all. And first and foremost, of Him, born of her. And us with Him. That is why... At the end, he's telling her, Mom, you got a son. It's a boy. Here he is. That's what he said. It's done, Mom. It's a boy. Pope Pius X affirms, everyone knows, in the same paragraph, that this woman signified the Virgin Mary, the stainless one who brought forth our head. And since she brings forth our head... Since all of us were contained in him, we were contained in her. So therefore, all of us are born of the womb of Mary. Now, that is not enough. And you will see why the liturgy is important. That event happened once, didn't it now? It happened when she was at the foot of the cross. Did this event happen before or after John sees his vision? Before. So what's up with this? Women now being in the pain of birth. Bringing forth a child. It happened. It happens again. And again. And again. Every Sunday it happens. The liturgy is what binds this whole thing together. Let me pull back a second. But before I do that, I want to point out to you something that is very important the relationship between Mary and the the Eucharist. Um, But before I do that, you see the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus, right? That is a summary of the Mass. The Mass has the two. Mary, by her pain and suffering, as the model of us all, participated in the death and resurrection of Christ and brought life to us all. So therefore, because of that privilege, she is present at all the masses. And that's why she is the model of priests. Mary, she who is not a priest, is the model of all the priests. And every priest celebrating the liturgy brings his pain, his suffering to the mass. That is why she loves the priests. She has a predilection towards them because they participate in the passion of her son in a unique way. And every priest needs to be Marian to be Eucharistic. Now that I said all that, let me back up a second and go back to our initial statement. We said God is now going to start and rule. Right? Right? At the end of the day, that's what we want to find out. How is He ruling? He just showed you. He just showed you how He's ruling. The temple is open. The ark from which we receive forgiveness, from which we receive life, is revealed. And she is a queen, full authority, in pains of travail, giving birth to us all. Christ rules through his mother. You understand now her apparitions. You understand why she has that authority. You understand what she said at Fatima. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph. That's in this book. right? That's what she told them. In the end, my Immaculate Heart will triumph about the consecration to Russia. Devotion to Our Lady is not some sort of a Catholic little thing that we just added to, you know, because we don't have enough to do. It is inscribed in the plan of God for His own ruling. Listen again to uh, Pope Pius XII. Paragraph 5. For can anyone fail to see that there is no surer or more direct road than by Mary for uniting all mankind in Christ and obtaining through Him The perfect adoption of sons, that we may be holy and immaculate in the sight of God. Let me read that to you again. For can anyone fail to see that there is no sure or more direct road than by Mary for uniting all mankind in Christ and obtaining through him the perfect adoption of sons, that we may be holy and immaculate in the sight of God. His mother most holy should be recognized as participating in the divine mysteries and as being in a manner the guardian of them. Participating in the divine mysteries. These are the sacraments. And as being in a manner the guardian of them. And then upon her as upon a foundation, the noblest after Christ rises the edifice of the faith of all centuries. These are not pious words. These are a commentary on the book of Revelation, on the liturgy. Again, we've said earlier that the purpose of God is to rule the world, but not the way we think of ruling, as in military might and power and all that. Although he may use those, he rules the world in a kingdom of priests. And at their head there is a queen who was present when he... Offered Himself and who participated in a unique and most exalted way into His suffering, her heart was pierced so that we may be born of her with our head. And she rules the world because that's what her Son willed, that is His divine will. Paragraph 22, from the same encyclical, Thou art all fair, O Mary, and the stain of original sin is not in thee. That is quoted from the Mass of Immaculate Conception. And thus, once again, St. Pius says, "Is justified what the Church attributes to the, this august Virgin, virgin, that she has exterminated all heresies in the world. Did you know that? Mary is called the one who exterminates all heresies. Why? Because of that position. She's the queen giving birth to us all. And she gives birth to the head and to the whole body united to him. In Mary, there's no heresy. That's why she's central. Imagine as a Jew, try to understand all this. Try to wrap your mind around this as a Christian of Jewish background. Not as a Catholic, been saying the rosary for all these years and know about Our Lady. Just try to put yourself in the context, the initial context. Where he's telling them, all right, here's the deal. You're all under siege. You have the Romans after you. You have the Jewish authority under you. You are being killed. You are being maimed. You have also heresy from within, heresy from without. It looks desperate. Take heart. God rules. And he has sent his mother. What? Say that again? We, we are so accustomed to it that we just can, you know, sure, we can take it. But imagine hearing it for the first time. Imagine the degree of faith you have to have in God to hear these words and abide by them. And they are said by whom? To whom the vision is given. You, you, you kind of logically understand why, why Christ gave that vision to St. John. Because he was the one among all of them that was most prepared to receive it. Why? He's the first one to be born. He lived it. He understands. Today, as you contemplate this image of the Blessed Virgin Mary, crowned with a crown of stars, the sun around her, the moon under her feet. So the moon represents variability, change. And so she controls all that. She's above all that. She's not touched by it. Nothing will... Mary will not fade away. She'll not go out of fashion Right? The sun is constantly shining light on her. The sun is her source of light. She doesn't have the source in herself, it's outside of her. It is in God. But He likes to stand behind her and shines light on her. That's His divine will. And the crown of stars are all the saints, all the apostles, and all the angels, which are really her children. And this is happening Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Not only do we have the presence of the king, we also have the presence of the queen. So next time, when you have a procession, think about who you are processing for. Think about who you are honoring. Think about those things. Understand the rosary more. And as we go through trials and tribulation and difficulties and suffering, keep your eyes focused as much as you can. And ask St. Joseph to help you, because really he is our best model. The one who accepted, was not afraid, despite all else, to believe in this woman. To believe that she is the mother of God. And to trust her. And to receive her. I know that difficulties sometimes can be really trying. I know that tragedies can, can hit. And suffering is not always easy to take on with joy. But if you keep your eyes and understand her role and her comforting presence in every liturgy, grace will flow because you will be aligned to receive it the right way. All your prayers are liturgical. All your prayers are effective because they join with the liturgy. Everything at the end of the day is coming from us to the priest, presented to our lady, and she, as the queen of us all, presents it to her son. Everything flows from us to Mary, from Mary to her son, by his divine will. Why is that? Because at the end of the day, what is he restoring? Jesus is restoring Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. So it cannot be only the victory of Adam that would be chauvinistic and would not be family oriented. It is the victory of the new Adam and the new Eve. God bless you. I have time for some questions. Yes. The question is, the liturgy is a celebration of the Paschal mystery. The Paschal mystery, Pasch, is really referring back, bringing us back to Easter, to the Passover. So therefore, it is a celebration of the new Passover, where Christ offered himself as the Lamb and as the priest on the cross. Hence, we're back exactly where we were. The institution of the Eucharist, which is going to be the foundation of the liturgy, is lived by Christ in his flesh on the cross, and Sunday after Sunday, it is made real for us. It is brought back in its fullness. And hence, Our Lady visits us Sunday after Sunday with her son. Yes. The, the comment is about the common suffering of Christ and His Mother on the cross. And as I was pointing out to you earlier, that the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the devotion to the Immaculate Heart and the Sacred Heart together, is really a summary of the whole liturgy. It is the It is the wedding of the new Adam and the new Eve. It is their mystical union together. And it is really what happens during the liturgy. When Christ comes to us, but his mother as well. Yes. Okay. The question is, during Mass there is a real sacrifice. And Christ suffered for us at the cross. Does Mary suffer again in that way? Alright. So, as you know, the... The sacrifice of the Mass is an unbloody sacrifice. We're not re-sacrificing Christ over and over again. It is a real sacrifice. It's a mystical sacrifice. Effectively, it is us being brought back to that moment in time when He is crucified. As St. Pius X pointed out, the suffering of Mary that is ongoing is a suffering of love as a mother is bringing forth her child. Imagine a woman... As men, we just have to imagine. But you as women, you're, you're blessed because you don't have to imagine. Especially those of you who've had children. You know what I'm talking about. Is giving birth. She's going through a lot of suffering, yet at the same time there is joy. Because a child is going to be born. That's the suffering of Our Lady. Alright? Yes. Is it safe to say that the liturgy conquers time, space, and all powers on earth? I, don't, I would not necessarily say that the liturgy conquers time or space. Um, those are more complex issues. What is time and what is space? But definitely and truly, the liturgy conquers all power on earth. Yes. Yes, in that sense, the liturgy affects all time, past and future. It is effectively by the liturgy that all these prophets of old are admitted into heaven. It is the power of the liturgy that saves. And the power of the liturgy, I mean also the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The two are... Absolutely connected. The, the liturgy is nothing more, again, than the reign of Christ in time, day after day, right? Yes, yes. So the book uh, by Peter Kreeft, Everything You Wanted to Know About Heaven and Never or Were Afraid to Ask, he tackles the question of time and eternity. I'll, I'll, I'll warn you, though, it's not easy read, so you're going to have to read it slowly, but it is very good read. We have time for one more question? Yes. Yes. Uh, The question is, can we elaborate on John being first to be born? John was at the foot of the cross, and he was the one that was given to Mary as her first son. No, 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 no. Born from her. Yeah. Born as her child. She's the first one she can claim. John is the first one she can claim, as she claims all of us. Thank you.